0: The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. He is risen. Well, good morning. We're honored to have you this morning. If you're our guest, thanks for, for being here to, to worship with us. our our practice here is uh, primarily, and by primarily I mean, you know, probably 95% of the time to preach uh, verse by verse through books of the Bible. We, we very rarely uh, deviate from that, um, and it, it doesn't usually matter what Sunday we may fall on, we we study the next verse um, or the next set of verses. And so um, over, over 12 years, there, there have been times where we, we've, we've taken a break on an Easter Sunday morning to preach a, a sermon on, on um, the resurrection. But mostly we, we, just, we, we keep working through books of the Bible. And so we're doing that this morning. Um, but, but by the grace of, of God, we find ourselves in a place in Philippians chapter 2. Um, that glorifies and honors the Lord Jesus Christ because of His uh, triumph over the grave, and so that's where that's where we find ourselves. I, I my my plan was this morning to work um, together from from verse five down to verse eleven. Uh, we, we're gonna we're gonna read all of that. You're you're gonna wonder here in a little while, um, Jason. You're you're on on verse. Eight or verse seven I don't think we're going to make it and you're right so don't get nervous don't get nervous um, we're, we're, n- we're not going to give in-depth study to, to the last um, stanza of this hymn um, but we will, we will come back next week and, and finish it um, so so don't don't worry uh, we, we find ourselves in Paul's letter to the to the church at, at Philippi in this Larger section where he has called the church to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've spent a number of weeks now looking at the ways that Paul has shown us what that looks like. What it looks like to live your life as citizens of heaven in a way that gives honor and the glory due Jesus. And what we looked at last week was that one of the ways we do this, one of the way we live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is as a community of believers to live in unity together. Paul says this starting in verse uh, chapter 2 and verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from my love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. In other words, because these things are the reality of your life, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but... In humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is an impossible task that the Apostle Paul is calling us to. A, a life of humility, a life of selflessness, a life of unity that comes from putting others before yourself. And the the question we were left with last week is, how in the world do we live this kind of life? If this is what God is calling us to as as His community, how how do we live this kind of life? And Paul answers that question by telling us to consider Jesus. Jesus to consider His example and His exaltation. And so that's what we're going to do this week and next week. This week we're going to consider His example. And next week we're going to consider His exaltation. This is what we see in verse 5. This is a a, a transition verse from Paul's command for us to live a certain way and then Paul's um, explanation of how we can live this way. He, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient How are we to live a life of humility where we consider others more significant than ourselves? We we live this way by considering Jesus, by having this mind among yourselves, Paul says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. To live this way, you must have this kind of mind. a life of of Christian obedience, a life of humility begins in the mind. You must have the kind of mind that Christ had. Paul says, "This, this mind is yours. This mind is already yours. Because if you are in Christ... That He is in you and His mind is in yours. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ is the ultimate example of humility for us. And this ultimate example comes from the reality that He, God, became man. That God became man. This is the incarnation. This is the central truth of Christianity. That God became man. Now you may be thinking, well Jason, I don't think that's the central truth to, to Christianity. Surely the central truth to Christianity is the crucifixion. Surely the the central truth to Christianity is the resurrection. Well, Jesus was not the only person to ever be crucified on a cross. Jesus is not the only person to ever be risen from the dead. The crucifixion, as as important as it is, is not the, the central theme of Christianity. The resurrection, as important as it is, is not the central theme of Christianity. Because the crucifixion would not have meant anything had Jesus not been fully God. What makes Christ's sacrifice on the cross count for our forgiveness is the reality that God Himself came in human form to take our place. The incarnation of Jesus, God becoming flesh, is the central truth of Christianity. I would argue that apart from that truth, there is no Christianity. Jesus was not just a... A good person. Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. Jesus wasn't just an ethical man. Jesus wasn't some sort of demigod. Jesus was God Himself in flesh. Paul's point for us is that the incarnation of Jesus, God becoming man, should not be for us just a theological concept. But the incarnation, God becoming man, is something for us to see, to understand, and to imitate. Paul is saying for us that Jesus is our model for how. To live, Jesus is our ultimate example for how to live. So many people wrestle with this question. How now shall we live? What should I do? What should my life look like? How should I live? So many people, if, they, if they're honest, they're wrestling with that question. And the good news for us is we don't have to wonder how we should live. All we have to do is look to Jesus. He's the ultimate example of how to live. And it's not only Paul that says this. Jesus himself made this claim. In John chapter 13, Jesus says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus has just washed the feet of the disciples. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. What was this example that Jesus says we should follow? It's, it's his example of humility, of lowering ourselves and serving others. The same thing that, that Paul is calling us to in Philippians chapter 2. It's important for us to remember this because the, the incarnation, this reality that Jesus is at the same time fully God and yet fully man. This, this theological concept of the Trinity that God has eternally existed in three distinct persons yet as one God. These things are lofty theological ideas. They're things that people a whole lot smarter than me have argued over for, for centuries. There's been volumes written on these topics. And if we're not careful, at church, we can sort of reduce these truths down to just theological concepts that we wrestle with and try to understand. But God's Word doesn't call us to stop there. We must understand them, not simply so that our understanding and our knowledge would expand, but so that our love would expand. When we wrestle with The fact that God Himself became man, that Jesus Christ from eternal glory condescended, lowered Himself, humbled Himself, and came in the form of man to serve man, to give His life as a ransom for us. When we wrestle with those truths, we shouldn't do so just so that our our knowledge grows, right? Knowledge, the Scriptures say, knowledge just puffs up. But love edifies. As we wrestle with these truths, our love should expand. Our love for Jesus should grow. Our love for others should grow. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, is there any greater mystery? And how God could be fully God and fully man. There's no greater mystery. If I was able to understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And so Paul's call for us is to look at the incarnation of Jesus, to look at the humiliation of Jesus, and to see Jesus not just in theological terms, but to see Him as the ultimate illustration of love and then to live our lives in the same love. The reality for us this morning from this text is that God became low out of love for you. And so Paul offers these verses as an example of what it means to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than yourselves. For us to not look to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so then Paul breaks out in verse 6 through 11 in beautiful prose. This this is, is poetry. And it's a, it's a very interesting passage of Scripture. And I would, I would encourage you to spend some time really studying this passage of Scripture. I, I, was, I was reading through some commentaries, and I was struggling to even understand what they say when it comes, when it comes to this. Um, but here's what most scholars agree. Most scholars agree that verses 6 through 11 were a hymn that the early church sang. It was a song. It was a a poem put to song that was a part of the early church worship. We, if that's true, and most scholars do believe it, if that's true, we we don't know where this hymn originated. We don't know. There's, There's a number of opinions. Some believe that that, Uh, Paul was the original author of these words and that these hymns were sung in the church even before Paul penned this this letter to to the church at Philippi. Uh, I read a commentary that argued that a a Hellenistic Jew wrote these words and their argument was that it was Stephen who who was stoned. We don't know who wrote these words if they were a hymn. Now, this isn't to say that if Paul didn't originally write these, these words, this hymn, then should we question their authority as the word of God? Or that we should question their inspiration as the word of God. That does not diminish, that does not diminish the the veracity that that these words are Holy Scripture because the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pin these words to this letter to the church at Philippi and all Scripture is God-breathed. But what it does, which is remarkable to me, is it solidifies for us that very early in the life of the church, very early, there was the common understanding that Jesus Christ is... God in the flesh. That that was settled in the early church. What we see in verses 6 through 8 is the dissension of Jesus. There's, there's so much symmetry to these verses. That's why we believe it was a song. seen different ways it's been, it's been arranged. But... You see six through eight, the dissension of Jesus, and nine through 11, the ascension of Jesus. In verses six through eight, there is a progressive lowering, a progressive humiliation in Jesus. Here, here's what we see Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, All right, this is the starting point of the lowering of the humiliation of Jesus' example of humility. This is where we must start. That Jesus eternally existed in the form of God. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? Christ Jesus, though He was in the form of God. Now this word form here has given some folks... Um, some problems. But it really shouldn't give us s- some problems. This, this word in the Greek is the word morphe. And it, it means the true being of a person. A person's nature. It has to do with the, the, the inward nature of a person. In the Greek there are two uh, words For form. You could say there's two forms of the word form. One is this word, morphe, and the other is the word schema. Morphe has to do with a person's nature, with who they really are, who they are inwardly, a nature that never changes. That's morphe. The word schema has to do with the appearance of a person. It's the outward appearance. And it can change. Here's the way I've heard it explained. Take me for example. I was created a person with personhood, with a soul and a spirit. I was created as a male. This isn't a political statement, though it could be. But those things about me never change. Who I am, my personhood, from the moment of conception until now, until I die, my, who I am, my personhood, the fact that I am Who I am, I'm a male. It never changes. The morphe, the form, never changes. The schema, the outward appearance changes. Right? At one time, I was an embryo. At one time, I was a a fetus. At one time, I was an infant. At one time, I was a child. At one time, I was a teenager. At one time, I was a young adult. Now, I think I'm a middle-aged guy. (laughs) Amen. The outward appearance changes. Some of it's kind of going back the way it was. I was born without hair, and I'm I'm headed back there. The schema changes. But my nature, my essence, it doesn't change. That's what Paul is, is saying here when he says, though he was in the form of God. Jesus was in the beginning, in the very nature, the very essence, the very condition of God. What makes God, God was fully found in Jesus. He was found in the form, in the nature of God. That's the beginning. Here's the next step in the lowering. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here we get a a glimpse into the mind of Christ. The incarnation of Jesus began in Jesus' mind. He decided... That his equality with God was not a thing to be grasped. But you look at this language, his equality with God, his equality with God. Jesus, he is not a manifestation of God. He is not a different God. He was equal to God. Yet he did not consider that equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to to hold tightly to. But Jesus decided that he would not cling to all that was his in God, all that was his as God, So the incarnation begins in his selflessness. He has every right as the eternal God to hold on to all the things that are rightly his. Yet he decided not to hold on to them. And so then came the next step. Verse 7. But he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Now, we must be very careful here that we don't misunderstand the meaning of what it means for Jesus to empty himself. We we think of emptying in uh, terms of subtraction, right? To to empty something is to, to take something away this this emptying of jesus was not the subtraction of his nature his morphe his form his nature does not change when we say that jesus emptied himself we are not saying we are not saying that he set aside his deity So what does it mean that He emptied Himself? If He didn't empty Himself of His nature, if He didn't empty Himself of His Godness, then what did He empty Himself of? Well, we see some things in Scripture that He emptied Himself of. Primarily, Jesus emptied Himself first of His heavenly glory. Jesus had existed for all eternity in heavenly glory. He did not start in a borrowed bed in Bethlehem. Jesus has eternally existed. And He has done so in eternal glory. Jesus tells us this in John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. As He prays to His Father, He says, I glorified You on earth having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. Eternal glory belonged to Him. Yet He did not consider it something to be held on to, and instead He emptied Himself of His eternal glory. Now, it wasn't fully gone. It was still there. It was just veiled in flesh. How do we know that? Because um, a few folks got to see that glory. And they saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration as the veil was lifted. And they saw Jesus in His eternal glory. And they fell out like dead men. Jesus empties Himself of His eternal glory to empty Himself of His eternal glory means that He gave up the right to use His powers. Now, I know that that sort of sounds, you know, like uh, Jedi, you know, (laughs) stuff. But God, in heavenly glory, has all power. Jesus emptied Himself of the right to use His powers. Not to say He emptied Himself of His power. He didn't. He still had powers. He did miraculous things. But Jesus could have done all sorts of things. But He chose not to. He could have done all sorts of things. But He chose not to. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for His sake, for your sake, He became poor, so that you by his poverty may become rich. Now this isn't talking about monetary terms. Though Jesus was a poor man. Jesus had nothing. Jesus had no no home. He borrowed one. Sleeping regularly outside. He had no home. Jesus had no boat. He borrowed a boat. Jesus had no donkey to be brought into Jerusalem. He borrowed a donkey. Jesus had no tomb. He borrowed a tomb. But this poverty of Jesus isn't talking about monetary poverty because if it was, then all of a sudden we're, we're health, wealth, and prosperity people, right? For your sake He became poor so that you by His poverty might become rich. It doesn't mean that in Jesus we all miraculously get rich. No, what's He talking about? He's talking about But spiritually, Jesus became poor so that by His poverty we might become spiritually rich. Jesus gave up the right to use His power. Jesus also gave up His authority. His authority. What do I mean by that? Jesus still had authority on earth. He, He walked and moved and exercised authority, but there was something Uh, dramatically different about his life as a man in that for the first time, Jesus became obedient. For all eternity, Jesus had no need to be obedient to God. He existed in eternal glory with God but He emptied Himself in that He became obedient. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5.8, although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. He became obedient to the the Father. Jesus empties Himself by emptying Himself, by leaving His heavenly glory and the, the right to use His powers giving up His authority. It also means He emptied Himself of His relationship with His Father. How did Jesus empty Himself of His relationship with the the Father? Nowhere is it more plainly seen than on the cross. Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus emptied himself. Not losing his deity, not setting aside his deity, but adding to it humanity. He emptied himself, fourthly, by taking the form of a servant. Literally, this is by taking the form of a slave. Jesus became a slave to God, a servant to God and to man by taking the form, same word here, morphe. Though His unchangeable nature was the same as God, He added to that nature that of a servant. Of a slave. Jesus, Jesus wasn't pretending to be a slave. He wasn't pretending to be a servant. He became a servant, just as he had always been God. Matthew chapter 20, verses 27 and 28 whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many how is Jesus an example for humility to us he's an example because he who was eternally glorious now condescended to a slave fifthly being born in the likeness Of men. This is unbelievable that the uncreated God of all eternity was born. Galatians 4 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. God came as a man, as a human. Lowering himself. Paul says, verse 8, and being found in human form. That means Jesus was seen as a man. His appearance was that of a normal man, nothing special the King of all eternity, the King of kings, the glorious One, the Creator of all things, the the God of all eternity, comes to earth as a helpless infant with no appearance that we should look at and marvel, but that of a normal, regular human being. Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death. That is the devil. Jesus humbling himself. Though he he was in the form of God eternally, considered equality with God, not a thing to be grasped. When he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, or sixthly, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Literally, he was made low by becoming obedient to the point of death. Look at the distance from eternal glory. Never having to know, never having to taste the sting of death as God. To humbling Himself even to the point of death. Could God go any lower? And the answer is yes. Even death on a cross. This is the lowest point. There is no more of a humiliation than a crucifixion. The God of eternal glory. Humbles himself all the way to death on a cross. And we're left to ask this question, why? Why would God do this? And the answer is, God would do this for us. For us, that's why He is the ultimate example of what it means to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others as more significant than yourselves. The God of all eternity out of love counted us as more significant. He looked not only to His own interests, But He looked to our interests as He descended from eternal glory to death on the cross. What God? What God would do this? The answer is only our God. The only true God. This, above all else, makes Christianity unique. That our God humbled himself to the point of death for us. And so, Paul's point is that you are to have this kind of mind. That we must. Consider Jesus. Do you have more rights than Jesus? Do you have more honor than Jesus? Do you have more glory than Jesus? No. So if He was willing to humble Himself, who do you think you are not to humble yourself? If He was willing to count others as more significant than Himself, who are you to not think of others as more significant than you? Have this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though He was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Even to the point of death, even to the death on the cross. Have that mind in you, Paul says. This this isn't just theological church. This is not just theological. It's easy for our church, who I hope we appreciate and prize Good, sound, clear doctrine. Good, deep theological understanding. God's Word does not exist just to simply know it. It exists to change the way we live. But of course the story doesn't end with His death. Praise God, this hymn doesn't end with His death. That's what this day is all about. Verse nine the great reversal. Therefore, because of the humility of Jesus, therefore God has highly exalted Him. He who was made low has now been made high again. He has exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of God, the father. What do we see? We see from eternity past to eternity future. We see from glory, Jesus descends to glory. He's been exalted and praise God. Death was not the end. The end isn't just resurrection. The end is a glorious confession. Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's the promise. The promise is that every person who has ever lived in any place at any time will eventually one day bow their knee and proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, They can refuse it. They can reject it. You can deny it. And you will die in your sins, but make no mistake, one day, your knee will bow. And your lips will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is... Will you do it now while grace is being offered? Or will you do it then in condemnation? But make no mistake, every knee will do it. Every mouth will proclaim it. God has, in His... Eternal grace put Jesus Christ at the center of all things. That's what we see. And so the question for us then becomes is Jesus the center of our lives? Do we see him as our model, as our example in how to live? Knowing that He, the eternal God, humbled Himself fully God and fully man in obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that because of His obedience, God has now lifted Him high and exalted Him and given Him a name that is above every other name. Jesus stands at the center of all. Is he standing at the center of your life? Is he standing at the center of my life? Or is Jesus just a thing we do on an Easter Sunday? What God is calling us to is to follow his example. To live a life of unity through humility. Humility. We'll pick up verse 9 next week. Father, would you help us live this way? Following your example of humility, emptying ourselves, looking to others as more significant than ourselves. Our great God in eternal glory has descended. Come as a man to save men. Come in flesh to save flesh. May we put our faith and our trust in the work of Jesus so that on that day, as our knees bow and our tongues proclaim, We are welcomed into your presence as your children, as your bride. Father, would you help this community of faith, this church, live in unity through humility as we consider Jesus together? It's in His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church Sermon Series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit christcentralchurch.net.